from WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm so happy to welcome to the program today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Federico Villaplano Grosso. And we're going to be talking today about diagnostic imaging and how diagnostic imaging can help veterinarians treat pets uh, for a variety of conditions uh, and disorders and uh, even injuries. So let me welcome you to the program, uh, Dr. Villaplano Grosso. I'm really glad to have you here. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. We think of diagnostic imaging in the world of human medicine as including a few uh, major categories, maybe the most famous of which is uh, x-ray or radiograph, uh, and I believe that those have probably been used to diagnose illness and injury in animals for a great long time. But maybe in the last several decades, other modes, I guess you might call them, or or, uh, I don't know what you'd call them, of diagnostic imaging have kind of come around in the, not just the field of human medicine, but have been adopted in the world of veterinary medicine. And today, I hope we can talk about some of these different modes of diagnostic imaging. Um, But just right off the bat, I mean, when we think about diagnostic imaging, we're basically talking about something that allows veterinarians to see inside of our pets, correct? That is completely correct. So uh, in veterinary medicine, as well as uh, for human medicine, we uh, have a lot of diagnostic imaging modalities. So as you mentioned, radiography was the first one to be implemented in, uh, in uh, veterinary uh, imaging. But then uh, with the technology and the most recent years, <clears throat> there have been many other modalities that uh, became much more frequently used. And they are extremely useful for diagnosing uh, diseases in, uh, in animals. You know, um, the interesting part is that we review all types of pets that can go from uh, little exotic animals to uh, small animals like dogs and cats. And then we can also do large wildlife animals, uh, zoo animals or uh, large animals like horses, cows, pigs. But uh, if I go back to the uh, modalities, uh, as you were mentioning, radiography has been the ones that we have used the most. And this still is being very used nowadays for most of the veterinarians. And uh, the reason for that is because it has many advantages. So uh, radiography is something that is going to be available in most of the clinics. And then uh, it's going to be fast to be performed. It's going to be cheap, relatively cheap compared to other imaging modalities and can provide a large amount of uh, information. So that will be uh, mostly used for um, looking at bones, for example, in cases, for example, where you're looking for any type of joint pathology, or if you're looking for a patient that had trauma, you're looking for fractures, laxations, like dislocation, stuff like that. Uh, <clears throat> but also it's very useful for looking at the thorax and for looking at the abdomen. So uh, the only drawback that has uh, radiography is that uh, it's a modality that you cannot see cross-section. So basically you have an object that is uh, three-dimensional and you present it in two dimensions. So that's going to be very helpful. And the other thing would be uh, that it uses uh, radiation. And therefore, it's something that uh, we have to be careful. People need to protect themselves when they're taking this type of exams. And also, uh, you need to use, like, dosimeters and stuff like that to uh, uh, calculate the total dose that you're absorbing of X-rays because with a certain time that have, it may have some what we call stochastic effect that may be the development of cancer interferes, a type of hereditary diseases. 
But if we move now to uh, the other modalities that are being much more frequently used uh, compared to a couple of decades before, those are ultrasound. That um, is also very useful for looking uh, to the soft tissues. So uh, with ultrasound, we're going to be using uh, uh, ultrasound waves that they are going to be in a very, very uh, uh, small spectrum. And then these waves, they are going to come from a probe. They are going to go into the patient, interact with the different tissues by absorption, refraction, or reflection. And then uh, they are going to be reflected or rebounded back to the transducer, creating an image. Uh, some of the uh, areas that we can look with this, mostly we say the abdomen is something that we look a lot with ultrasound. And that will be something complementary to radiography, because radiography has certain indications. But for looking specifically at the architecture of the organs, the vascularization, stuff like that, we can uh, use ultrasound. Some of the other applications for ultrasound will be uh, echocardiograms, so looking at the heart. So that's going to be uh, the gold standard indeed for looking at the, uh, at the heart, because with radiographs you can look at the size, if there is any modification in the uh, cardiac chambers, like in terms of enlargement, or you can look at the lungs or the pulmonary vessels. However, if you want to see structurally how the heart is looking like, so if there are any chambers that are dilated, if there is any part of the myocardium that may be thickened, if there may be any communications in different chambers, that would be something that can be perfectly achieved with uh, echocardiography. And then some of the other indications where you can use ultrasound would be for looking at some thoracic structures, looking at uh, musculoskeletal structures, so that means muscles, tendons, joints, and things like that. And then finally, some of the less frequently, but also used, is looking at the eyes, for example, if you want to look how what the eye look like from inside. If you have, a, for example, a patient with cataract, where the lens is completely opacified and then you cannot see the retina. So uh, in those cases, you can use ultrasound for that. Uh, even looking at neurological structures like uh, the brain, the spinal cord, or the nerves. And this should be for whatever structure is not surrounded by bone or by gas because bone and gas, they are both enemies for ultrasound because they will reflect or absorb completely the, uh, the, the ultrasound, and therefore they would not lead to a good image quality. And then if we move on to other modalities, now we go to the advanced cross-sectional techniques, and uh, this one will be mostly CT and MRI. So uh, the great advantage of these uh, technologies is that they have been super developed in the last uh, years, and they are still improving very fast. So uh, if we talk first about uh, CT, so CT would be basically like a lot of X-rays. So uh, in this case, we're going to have a machine that has a very big gantry, which is like a big donut. And then in the center has a table that can move with the patient on top of it. And then what is going to happen in this machine is that there's going to be an X-ray tube, which is going to deliver a lot of X-rays. And on the other opposite side of the machine, there are going to be a lot of detectors where they're going to uh, captate or uh, take the uh, attenuation uh, created by the different tissues when these X-rays pass through the, uh, through the patient. So uh, CT is something that has improved a lot in the last years. Now we have a lot of what we call multi-detector CT machines that have multiple detectors compared with uh, the old machine that we have one single detector or two detectors. And this means that when the patient is on the table, this X-ray tube is rotating very fast around the patient, delivering these X-rays. And then uh, <clears throat> these X-rays and the attenuation of them is uh, absorbed by the detector, creating an image. And this compared, for example, to radiography, allows now to see uh, uh, the patient sliced in very thin slices. 
compared to something that is uh, where there is no superimposition for saying, uh, compared to the radiographs where again, we have a 3D object seen in two dimensions. Now with this, we have the whole patient slice that can go to very thin slices up to like half millimeter, which is very, very thin. And that allows to see almost everything with a lot of detail. And then um, CT also has many other advantages. So uh, some of them is that we can give uh, intravenous contrast. And then with this, we can see the vascularization of the tissues. We can look for, for example, thrombus or embolus in the in vessels. We can look at um, different uh, contrast phases. If we're going to look just selectively at arteries or at the venous portal system, or if we're going to see at the veins. So that allows a lot of things. Then also with CT, as we mentioned, compared to radiography, there is no superimposition. So therefore, it's much easier to see all the uh, different structures. And also CT allows a large amount of reconstructions and reformats. This means that we can, for example, look at the patient, not just a slice like in transverse plane, which will be like if we take a piece of bread and we slice it. We can also look in different places, what we call dorsal, which will go from the back to the uh, ventrum, or we can look sagittal. That will be if we slice, for example, the bread in a different plane. Also, this type of uh, a, uh, modality allows 3D reconstructions. So those are extremely useful for surgeons and also for showing to uh, pet owners what we're seeing. So for example, if you have a dog or a cat that was hit by a car and had a multiple pelvic fracture secondary to the trauma, that's something that sometimes to look on radiographs or in transverse planes on CT may be very difficult to assess. However, when you complete a 3D reconstruction, then you can even print it with a 3D printer, and then you can perfectly see all the configuration of different fractures. So this is one of the other huge advantages of CT, as well as many other different types of reconstruction, which I'm not going to go into, like maximum intensity projection, minimal intensity projection, and so on. That is, the, yeah, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Uh, continue. No, no. No, no, please, please, go ahead. I was oh, going to talk about the MRI. Well, I mean, you're you're giving us a great overview of some of these over uh, these modalities uh, right here at the top of the program, and this is this is outstanding information. Uh, but uh, and and I do want to definitely hear about MRI. But let's kind of maybe take these in turn, uh, if if we can. Um, okay. We'll start we'll start with one that you you led off with, which was the radiograph. And and you mentioned that the radiograph, which is something our, our these listeners to this program will be familiar with. Anybody, whether or not you've had a broken bone yourself or your pet, uh, I hope has not. You have likely been to the dentist and seen <laughs> X-rays of your mouth, and and so you know kind of what it is that you're looking at. It's basically that classic black and white image uh, up against a light box and you see the bones inside of the animal or if it's your face because the dentist is taking x-rays of your teeth well then you've seen that kind of um, with the bones showing up kind of as light areas right and then the rest of it showing up as dark on the image and you mentioned that one of the drawbacks to the radiograph is good as it is as a technology and as old as it is, it's kind of a miracle that, that we have this. Uh, it does involve radiation. Uh, tell me about some of the precautions that you have to take uh, to make sure that the staff who take radiographs are, are safe. That's a great question. 
So uh, radiation safety is what we call it in uh, diagnostic imaging is extremely important as part of uh, radiology because here some of the precautions that you need to take is first of all uh, you need to be as far as you can from the primary beam. So the primary radiographic beam that will be the X-ray tube which is producing all these X-rays they're going to be thrown from the X-ray tube towards the detector with the patient in between. So um, ideally you should be as far as you can from the uh, from the primary beam, because there is where you have the most intense radiation. So uh, there is an inverse square law, which means that as far as you start uh, going away from the source, then you're gonna get much less uh, radiation. So that would be the first principle uh, that we need to follow, just to be far away from the uh, primary beam and never within the primary beam. And then all the things that we need to take into account would be use um, a shielding. So uh, in this case, we're going to use different devices to protect ourselves from that radiation, which are going to be made of lead. The reason why they are made of lead is because it has a very high atomic number, and then most of the X-rays are going to be absorbed by this lead, not going further into, into you. And some of the uh, things that we can use are a thyroid shield protectors. So this is like to be placed around the neck. Then we have also aprons, or you can have a jacket and a skirt. That will be to surround most of your body. Then uh, certainly gloves. And then if you're working, for example, in a uh, catheter lab where they're using fluoroscopy, which is similar type of uh, modality, but here is going to be like real-time uh, radiography. In this case, you may have other devices that they have like leaded glass or uh, other type of shieldings just to be protected from this radiation. Whenever possible, here, for example, at the uh, vet college in the University of Florida, we have the uh, lack to have very good technicians that they are very familiar with animals. And commonly, we give them a little sedation just to keep them quiet and do not fight, do not stress them, and then uh, ask a little bit more the positioning. And then what we try to do with some uh, positioning aids that could be like tape, a uh, foam wedges, stuff like that, we can position them and then we can even exit the room where they are safe on the table, so nobody gets radiation aside of the patient. So that's something that will be highly encouraged. For example, in the UK, that's something that is required by law, so uh, no technician can be in the radiographic room except if it's an emergency. And then finally, it's important to monitor the amount of radiation that you're, being, uh, that you're receiving, so uh, the dose that is being absorbed. And that is uh, managed by dosimeters. And there are many different types. Some of them, we just put them here on our neck or in the... Uh, on the hips, or you can have like rings, so it depends on the different types. And this, what it's going to do is it's going to calculate the amount of radiation absorbed by that region of your body, and then every uh, X period, like every month or every three months, this needs to be sent to the uh, National uh, Radiation Agency, and then there they will read it, and then they will say the amount of radiation being absorbed. And then if there is any accident or any uh, reason for what you have been exposed more than what you should, then they will let you know. But uh, this is important to control, mostly for, as I mentioned before, the stochastic effect. That means that uh, with a lot of exposure, it's very low the likelihood, but uh, that may interfere into the uh, development of uh, cancer, for example, or some hereditary diseases. So the radiograph, which, as we've been saying, has been around for quite a long time, has been a go-to for a variety of 
different reasons. Uh, it is, as you say, uh, less expensive than some of the other modalities. And I'm guessing that that's just because the technology has been around for quite a while and therefore um, it's a bit more affordable than some of the newer technologies. Um, and yet it is still a, a very effective one for a variety of reasons. A, a radiograph might be what you would turn to if you suspected, say, a broken bone, correct? Yes, completely correct. Yeah. And I would say also the good thing is that uh, for most of the diseases, can give you already mostly an answer that can be very fast and sometimes will tell you, okay, now we see this, but uh, to further characterize, then we will need to uh, go to other modalities. Yeah. And so the radiograph, again, is something that will be available in, would you say, many veterinary clinics across the country? Yes, I would say that uh, from all the different uh, imaging modalities, probably radiography is going to be the most available in, I would say, most of the clinics, in not in almost all of them. Yeah. By these days. That, and that's good news because, uh, again, it's something that can be... Uh, very advantageous if if one needs to uh, see inside an animal and, and to have that at the disposal of your neighborhood veterinarian is is great. Um, but when that falls short or when things get a little bit more complicated, other modalities might be necessary. And so I want us to uh, talk a little bit about more of those when we come back from a break here on the program. And this is where I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Federico Villaplana Grosso, and we'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Federico Villaplana Grosso. And we're talking today about diagnostic imaging, this wonderful kind of category uh, uh, that includes multiple modalities that allow veterinarians to see inside of our pets in less invasive ways than, you know, cutting them open. Uh, and we left off, we had talked, uh, we had a great overview of the different modalities, and we talked a little bit about radiographs in particular. Um, but after you had mentioned radiographs earlier, you were talking a bit about ultrasound. And here's one that I think after the common X-ray, my listeners might be next most familiar with, and that is because... An ultrasound is used commonly uh, for pregnant people, and a technician can kind of rub this uh, probe or, or wand over the belly and kind of see inside. Uh, that's how I think many people will be familiar with the ultrasound, correct? Yeah, that's completely correct. Now, that's so, probably less, it's probably less common in our pets to, to get ultrasounds to, you know, determine uh, the sex of a baby, but it is still used for a variety of reasons. Uh, describe some of the reasons you, you'll you use an ultrasound again, and, and then tell me more about it. So, uh, there are many different scenarios where we're going to use ultrasounds, but I would say the most common one would be to look at into the abdomen of our patients. 
And uh, the reason for that is because when we use radiography, radiography has just only five different types of opacities, which goes from air, fat, soft tissues, which would be the same like if we look at any soft tissues or fluids, then uh, mineral, and finally metal. However, with ultrasound, now we're going to be able to look to these organs and then differentiate, for example, what is tissue and what is fluid, or uh, looking at the structure of things. So I would say one of the most common indications for doing abdominal ultrasound will be in the emergency setting when somebody's presented with their pet because he's having a lot of vomiting. That could happen in dogs and cats, and they're presented maybe you have a, a young puppy or a pit bull or something that uh, has been playing, and then after that he's presented with a lot of vomiting. So uh, one of our biggest concerns would be uh, having a gastrointestinal mechanical obstruction which means that either at the outflow of the stomach or throughout the small intestine, there may be something obstructing the uh, passage of contents and therefore giving to, uh, this, uh, this vomiting. So uh, for this, many times we'll use radiography. And radiography can be helpful just to see like a distended stomach or a distended bowel, and then that may be suggestive of an obstruction, but uh, many times it's not conclusive or you need to further characterize what is the reason for that obstruction. And there is where ultrasound is going to be extremely useful. So uh, here we'll be able to look at all the stomach, all the small intestine, and then look, for example, for things like a foreign object, which would be uh, like maybe a toy or some type of uh, food that should not be uh, ingested by the animal. Or we may see also a twist of uh, the intestines, that can be also another reason for obstruction. If you're dealing with an older patient, an older uh, dog or a cat, you may have a mass, or like a tumor, affecting uh, this and causing obstruction. Something else will be uh, intussusception, which is like when you have intestine, which is being invaginated within another intestine. So all these things, with radiographs, they will not be uh, easily detectable, except if they are like mineral opaque or they have like a, or metallic. But uh, for most of them, they are going to be a soft tissue, and therefore it's impossible to distinguish between them. So for this reason, uh, ultrasound would be amazing. Uh, I'm thinking other indications, for example, in patients that they may be lame, like let's say in the, uh, in the uh, thoracic limb, in the forelimb, or in the rear limb. And then the first thing we're going to do is obtain radiographs, looking at the bone or at the uh, joints, depending where we localize the pain. But sometimes with radiographs, you may see just the body changes, but you're not going to be able to assess very clearly the changes into the soft tissues, which uh, means at the level of the tendons, the ligaments, the joints, or the muscles. So uh, in the case where you do radiographs for lameness and you don't detect radiographic changes in the bone, explaining that lameness, probably you would need to uh, do an ultrasound later on. And then that ultrasound will be uh, very helpful because you're going to be able to distinguish different soft tissues. You can see at lesions in between the tendons. And even you can also administer medications with ultrasound guidance. Uh, that is something that we cannot do, for example, easily with radiography. So with the access to the ultrasound as a, as a modality, that gives you some more uh, opportunities to diagnose things that might have been more challenging with a radiograph alone. And this is another technology that is probably common in maybe some bigger veterinary clinics, um, but is not ubiquitous. It wouldn't be everywhere, maybe? 
Yeah, I would say that this one would be uh, also, I mean, nowadays it's becoming more and more available. The thing is that many times also the machines available and the experience of the uh, people using the machines is not as developed as for specialists. So, uh, but it's something that certainly is increasing a lot. And a lot of people uh, start acquiring machines for the clinics, for a uh, mostly emergency setting, what they call the uh, quick assessment for the abdomen or for the thorax just for a uh, very large like emergency uh, issues like if you're looking for hemorrhage in a cavity or stuff like that or a, a patient with a very big heart or something like that but uh, i would say that it's certainly not as available as uh, radiography and when uh when you need it though it's great to have it uh but g- going a little bit further down when we start to talk about modalities that probably are only going to be found in much more advanced clinical settings. We might get to things like MRI or CT, correct? These are these are expensive modalities that are probably in specialty clinics uh, and large veterinary hospitals, right? Yeah, you are completely right. So for advanced cross-sectional techniques like CT and MRI, these are certainly not available in every clinic you would just be uh, able to see that in very large hospitals or in an academic setting. Uh, But this is much more specialized. It requires a lot of uh, technology. It's very expensive to to install all this. And also, you are almost required to have technicians that they know how to run these machines and also uh, people to read them. Oh, I got you, yeah. Something else, because uh, in many places, they are going to be able maybe to have machines and they have somebody that knows how to do the, the scan and to run it, but not how to read it. And in here, something that it takes us a lot of uh, role would be the telemedicine. So uh, because now I would say there are many more CT machines and uh, MRI machines without a radiologist on site than with a radiologist on site. So that's something that the technology has also uh, increased much faster than the amount of uh, veterinary radiologists. I see. Now, uh, with the modalities besides the radiographs, are there are there risks to the technicians and the operators, um, either from radiation or any other kinds of risks? Yes. So um, I would say probably ultrasound is the safest of the modalities. Uh, that one has a very low uh, risk and mostly would be for pregnant people if you're doing a lot of ultrasounds. But uh, if, and then radiation, uh, sorry, for radiology is usually very small dose, so that's not an issue. However, when we talk about CT, CT will be like thousands of radiographs. So here is, well, it's extremely important to be protected and certainly to avoid to be in the room if possible. Because here the amount of radiation that you can get is very high. So I would say for human patients, they would try to limit the amount of CT scans in order to uh, decrease the development of cancer. And the same also, they will try to avoid it or diminish the amount in kids compared to more adult people. Because certainly as younger you are, then the most risk of developing uh, any uh, complications or any uh, cancer, for example, later on in life. However, in our patients, that's usually not such an issue. But if we go back to the technicians, so uh, sometimes they need to be in the room with the patient, for example, anesthesiology technicians. And then what we do for that is that there are certain areas in the uh, in the room, especially close to the uh, the gantry, that is this like this big donut, 
uh, where there's going to be less radiation delivered. And then certainly if they are inside there, they should be behind some type of shielding, which usually is like very thick leaded glass. And also they will be wearing all the shielding, like the apron, the gloves, and the uh, uh, protection for the thyroid. And that would be mostly for CT. But whenever possible, uh, nobody should be uh, within the area that has radiation, uh, just to avoid that. And then if we talk about MRI, MRI itself is not, uh, is, is very safe. So uh, it's not a problem because it doesn't use a, any uh, type of uh, ionizing radiation. In this case, it's going to be using more magnetic fields and a radio wave. So that is all safe. The only problem is that usually now the MRI machines, they have a very high field, which means that they have a very high uh, magnetic field. And this means that if you come into the room with any type of like uh, a fibrous material, so some types of metals, those they will be attracted immediately to the uh, to the magnetic bore, and then if there is anybody in the way of that object, then that can go through your body or can be encrusted in your body. So uh, it's extremely important that when people get into an MRI room, they don't go with any metal inside. Also, if you have a pacemaker or any other type of device, you should not get into the room because there may be also uh, some interaction with the device, and certainly you don't want to have any interaction with a pacemaker. So uh, those will be the main uh, risk issues. But uh, there have been reported accidents of people like uh, having a gurney into the room and then that was immediately attracted, bringing the people in between the smashed or like an oxygen pump or maybe scissors. So because these are going to be flying objects going very fast that then again can go into the body of uh, whoever is there. Oh, and that would be terrible. Now, you have access to um, something that is remarkable, and that is a kind of gurney, a, a big, yeah, it's like a big cart that you could even lie a horse down on, but it's not made of a ferrous material. It's made out of what? Aluminum or something something like that. Exactly, exactly. So they have uh, they use other type of metals like aluminum that they are not going to be uh, ferromagnetic and therefore they are going to be uh, not going to be attracted to the uh, to the magnet. Uh, also, they will use like plastic and other type of materials that they are not going to be uh, ferromagnetic. And there are all kinds of warnings probably posted about you know for to to warn people of of the high magnetic field. Now, does that magnetic magnetic field is it only? Uh, activated when the machine is on or is it always uh is it like a permanent magnet it will will it always attract metal yeah no that is going to be always on so uh, there are different type of magnets but the high frequency uh the sorry the high field uh, magnets those usually they are containing a lot of helium and they need to be always on so as you mentioned there are a lot of signs outside of the room then not everybody is allowed to come into the room and people that is allowed to come into the room should have follow education and take courses which are like to be taking every couple of years just to make sure that everybody is completely aware about all the um, MRI safety and uh, that there are no accidents happening but um, in case that there would be an accident and the magnet needs to be stopped there is a red button which is like the alarm button that you can uh, push it, you can quench, and then all the helium will go out of the uh, of the magnet, and then the magnet will have like no uh, no strength anymore. Oh, but does but that ruin it? That does that ruin them? Yeah, that will ruin it completely. I mean, it's not ruin it, and what it will be is very expensive because then all this helium is going outside, and then uh, 
this needs to be refilled and this is going to cost a lot of money. Yeah. So uh, it's, so the quench button, we try not to push it, but certainly this is an emergency that needs to be pushed. That will be the first thing Yeah. to stop the uh, magnetic field. It's absolutely fascinating technology. But here, uh, Doctor, let's take another break. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Federico Villaplana Grosso. And we'll be back with more discussion of diagnostic imaging after this. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Federico Villaplana Grosso. And we're talking today about diagnostic imaging. And boy, we're learning a lot. Now, uh, Dr. Villaplana Grosso, I want to talk a little bit about the training of the technicians and the others who work in this technology, because uh, while you are a specialist in this, there are many people who are in it who maybe are not veterinarians per se, but but they are technicians and they receive a lot of training. Um, how important is that? What, what do they need to know to be able to participate in uh, much of this uh, diagnostic imaging technology? So uh, technicians they are, or technologies, they are an extremely important part of our job. Indeed, I would say that we would not be able to do our job without them. So um, in veterinary medicine, you can have uh, human technologies, so people that haven't worn them, the, uh, like nurses in uh, medical schools that haven't worn a special training for specific modalities. But also in uh, veterinary medicine, we have our certificated veterinary technicians that they need to follow uh, and pass a, a, a national exams in order to become uh, board certified in uh, veterinary diagnostic imaging that uh, are again key uh, staff in our in our service or in any service so uh, i would say that whatever you have a big hospital or a big practice where they have uh, most of the different imaging modalities is uh, yeah fundamental to have uh, technicians and I would say that uh, even they know more than we do in the technical aspects. So we have to uh, study about this and uh, we have been trained and we have done this, but certainly that's their daily job. And uh, for many things, they do it uh, better than we do. And indeed, one of the, the most important uh, parts of what they do, and, and you mentioned this uh, earlier when talking about some of these different modalities, is they might look at the images and they might have ways of presenting the images uh, that really elucidate and, and make clear what it is that you're seeing. Because while a radiograph might be straightforward enough, some of these modalities would present um, data that is a bit challenging to interpret sometimes, I'm guessing. Completely, completely right. So uh, and I would say that this is uh, now mostly for CT and MRI. So it's very important to know the technology, the artifacts associated with uh, these imaging modalities, and how to create the images in order to make good uh, quality images. So uh, many times it's something that needs to be uh, also decided with a radiologist or with an engineer, if it's something more complex. But I would say uh, specialized technicians, they are able to uh, produce high quality images 
with the machines, but also because they look at different techniques and how to improve image quality. And that's something that uh, is extremely useful and uh, also crucial for our, for our job. And these uh, technicians, I mean, they must go to a good deal of training to be able to learn this stuff. I mean, uh, an MRI or a CT is um, not just the kind of stuff that uh, you kind of learn easily on the job, I'm guessing. Yeah, no, there you're, you're right. So here they need to study a lot, and then they need to be uh, physically trained in facilities. So, uh, for example, here we have people that is certified for that. But aside of that, when we have other technicians uh, learning about a modality, then aside of studying a lot, then they will be introduced with another more experienced technician on doing all the different scans and explaining how the machine runs, how the different images they obtain, and everything like that. But certainly it's a long process that uh, would take at least like a good year of uh, clinical training aside of all the studying. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, working closely with those individuals who, who help you out um, really makes it possible for you to uh, diagnose and treat animals in ways that maybe, you know, would not have been possible a couple generations ago. We talked sort of earlier in the program about some of these technologies. And while x-rays have been around for, what, 100 years maybe or more, um, (laughs) some of these technologies are more recent. And even when we talk about the field of veterinary medicine, maybe a bit more recent even than the use in human medicine. But I wonder if you can uh, talk a bit about some of the kind of disease processes or or different sort of uh, maladies or what have you that you are now able to diagnose and treat that maybe absent some of these diagnostic imaging modalities you would not otherwise have been able to treat. That's a, a great point. So uh, I would say one of the modalities that has improved the most has been uh, a... a MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, because now the technology is leading to a very good image quality, which is helping us to make more a certain diagnosis and to help more the patients. So uh, in this matter, I would say that also MRI is probably the best modality for looking at the neurological soft tissues, so looking at the brain and the spine. And um, again, before we're not having access to MRI or if we had access with a low field MRI that so they will display uh, images, but the quality will be uh, very poor and therefore not able to distinguish something clearly. Maybe you're able to see that there is a mass effect into the, uh, into the brain, but you were maybe not able to distinguish if that could be something more inflammatory, more like a plastic lesion or a skeletal lesion. Yeah, that's something that certainly now with the new technologies has been much improved. And that would apply also to CT. Uh, CT also has improved a lot the uh, technology in terms of uh, the time for acquiring the exam, and especially about the, uh, the uh, thickness of the slices, which means that uh, now we can go again to half millimeter, which is very, very thin, and that would allow you to see structures up to a half millimeter size. So, which means that now we're going to be much more specific and much more clear about all what we see. And, and then if I... Yeah, I'm sorry. sorry. And if I, I comment also about the technicians, so uh, thanks to them, 
that they know how to run perfectly these machines and obtain high uh, quality images, then that makes our life much easier. Because if you have somebody that may not be experienced, then when they are taking the images, they may lead to a lot of artifacts. And then when you have artifacts like this, that may be not diagnostic anymore. So again, they are crucial for, for our job. And, you know, all of this combined allows allows a veterinarian like yourself to to diagnose and treat diseases better than you would have in the past. Uh, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that some of this technology can be used to help uh, veterinarians and, and those who would treat animals to create a 3D printout of, say, a part of an animal's body that might allow you to have better insight into what's going on, uh, that's got to be a more recent development in this field. Yes, and that is something that is being most and most developed with the uh, 3D printers. Uh, and again, this is a great thing because then surgeons sometimes, so they can practice the surgery on that 3D printed model before doing that in the patient. And also, for example, that will be extremely useful when you're going to correct, like, deformities and limbs. If, for example, a dog has a crooked leg because it had a fracture when he was a puppy and then was never correctly fixed, and then has the leg completely uh, deformed. So then they can practice how they are going to refix that and make it straight again uh, on that 3D printed model uh, versus trying directly on the patient. Or, for example, if you have a large uh, tumor on a bone, for example, on the skull, and you're planning to resect that part of the tumor, then you can practice on the 3D printed model and then do that on the real patient. And that is almost miraculous. Now, tell me, do you feel like the technology that we have today will continue to improve? That is the technology we have now. Like you said that some of the image quality has improved with some of these modalities. Is there still room for improvement without fundamentally changing the technology itself? Yeah, I believe that this is going to be uh, improvement still for the years to come because we can see that uh, in most of the modalities, uh, the uh, advancement and the improvement has been exponential in the last years. So my guess is that this is going to continue to grow uh, as it has been doing the last years. So if we talk, for example, about, I don't know, ultrasound machines, uh, I think about the ultrasound machine I started using when I was um, a resident, and the image quality of what we had was using at that time to what we're using now is incomparable. So now we can see much better, with much more detail. We have many more options. Uh, we can fuse that also with other modalities like CT and MRI. So uh, if you perform a CT on a patient, then you do ultrasound, you can match to see the same lesions with uh, different technologies. So uh, my guess is that the technology is going to keep on improving as it's doing in the uh, next years. Yeah, I mean, can you describe to me the difference between uh, a, an image that you might have seen, say, 10 or 15 years ago and an image that you might see now? Is there just more detail? Is there is there finer detail? Is is it just, um, you know, clear, less distortion, that kind of thing? Yeah, so uh, there are many things that they have been changed, mostly the uh, spatial resolution and the contrast resolution. But I would say, like, in the older machines, would be like if you're looking at watching a movie or something where you have not paid the cable, where everything is, like, fuzzy and blurry, and then uh, the ones that we have now, they are super neat. They are perfectly sharp. You can see perfectly difference uh, between the different uh, shades of gray or different contrast. 
So uh, it's like watching a very old movie and then uh, with the old uh, like uh, effects and now watching a movie now with the new uh, effects is uh, completely incomparable. Yeah, I mean, obviously the the consumer technology in terms of computer monitors and television screens has improved. Has that allowed the diagnostic images to become clearer to technicians and veterinarians alike? That, that too. So uh, monitors is one of the things, but uh, the other thing will be the technology intrinsic from the uh, different machines. But yeah. uh, certainly also the monitors, they have helped to improve a lot the image quality too. In the, in the time that we have left, I'm going to ask you to kind of speculate uh, about the future. If we were having this conversation, say, 20 years from now, where do you see the technology then? Will we, will we have something that can completely see inside the body, maybe with lots of great contrast, lots of um, sort of a, a 3D image that can be rotated and clear, and very clear that you can unmistakably identify all the different systems in the body? Yeah, I would think that uh, that probably would be feasible from here to 20 years to have a scanners that they are able to deliver like 3D type of uh, image uh, without also using radiation, for example, just to, uh, to make it safer for the patient. And then when you can have just a very fast scan of the whole body, for example, and then detect lesions and, um, and depict them also like in a 3D uh, type of image. And also something else that would be very curious to know is what is happening from here now to 20 years with artificial intelligence. Because I guess that, I mean, now it's starting. I'm not very familiar with this uh, technology yet in the veterinary world, but I know that this now is becoming uh, something new. And then I guess that from here now to 20 years, there will be a lot of development into that too, which means that then we can use some machines to help us making diagnosis and then focus ourselves on things that the machines would not be able to do. Right. And, and if a veterinarian like yourself is able to have this technology essentially not be a barrier at all to diagnosing and treating disease, then that promises better outcomes for your animal patients. Yes, yes. Having artificial intelligence, I think that this is well applied. And if it's accurate, then it's going to be a great tool for us. Well, uh, Dr. Federico Villaplana Grosso, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really enjoyed the conversation and I learned a lot and I hope the listeners did too. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to be here. Dr. Federico Villaplana Grosso is a veterinarian at the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, where I also want to thank Sarah Carey for her help with the program. And I want to thank you all for listening. I'm Dana Hill. I hope you'll join me next time for another episode of Animal Airwaves Live. Bye bye.